Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to The Shapes of Stories, a podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige, as your host. Stories come in all shapes and sizes, whether it be from our favourite books, our life experiences, or the day-to-day challenges and issues we face in the world today. Hi guys, welcome to the first episode of the Shapes and Stories podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige. Um, Yeah, this is a brand new podcast. I'm going to be talking to you about a variety of different things, but it's all going to be involved with stories. And stories come in all shapes and sizes, whether it be um, different books that we read by different authors, uh, whether it be um, stories that people have to tell, the journeys that they've been on, whether it be stories that are currently going on in the news. Um, Lots of different types of stories that we've got to share with you. We've got some amazing guests coming on over these first few episodes. Um, But it felt only proper to start um, the podcast with the theme of a real a real genius of a storyteller is the only way I can describe him. Um, and that being Roald Dahl. And obviously, we can't get Roald Dahl on now, sadly. But we have the next best thing, which is Roald Dahl's biographer, Donald Sturrock. And Donald shares um, his experiences with Roald Dahl. Really fascinating to hear Donald's story. Um, he has a book about Roald Dahl's life, a really fascinating biography called Storyteller, The Life of Roald Dahl. Um, and Donald knew Roald Dahl from a very young lad when he worked for the BBC. And he, he, he knew Roald throughout Roald's life until about two months before he died, I believe, the last time um, they saw each other. And Donald shares some really interesting things about Roald Dahl's life, not just his writing, his personal life as well, the traumas that he went through, a very a very Shakespearean-like life Roald Dahl had. And it was really interesting, not just to learn more about Roald Dahl's writing and his influences, but his personal battles that he had to deal with as well, and how that perhaps influenced his writing as well. Um, so yeah, really, really interesting chat that we had with Donald Sturrock. Um, really looking forward to sharing the episode with you Um, if you'd like to follow us um, you can follow us on the Shapes and Stories Twitter which is just at Shapes and Stories or you can follow me personally on Twitter which is at LPrestige7 I'm on Instagram under Prestige Books and under my Facebook, which is just Lawrence Prestige. Um, yeah, really looking forward to having the having you guys on the journey of this new podcast. Um, lots of great um, episodes coming your way with some amazing guests. Lots of different um, stories. Like I said, stories of all sorts coming your way very soon. Uh, but without further ado, here is my chat all about Roald Dahl's life with the wonderful Donald Sturrock. Okay, guys, thanks for joining me today. And I'm delighted to say I am joined here by Donald Sturrock. Donald, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks, Lawrence. Yeah, so how's this year been for you? It's obviously been a bit of a weird a weird year. <laughs> Very weird, I'd say. A lot of things that were going to happen got cancelled. I had a... A very a show I was looking forward to that I'd written the, the the words for that was going to happen in America, which got which got pulled very early on. And uh, but you know, on on a scale of one to ten, I suppose it's not been too bad. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's really great to have you on because I, I was saying to um, Giles, who helps me produce the show, that uh, when we were talking about getting different people on, I was like, you know, I've read this fascinating book about Roald Dahl, and you know, with, with the podcast of Shapes of Stories. Um, I think, you know, the most natural storyteller I could think of is Roald Dahl, not just in terms of his books, but um, the, the, the whole aspect of his life is pretty much um, a very story. It's, it's almost Shakespearean in terms of the highs and lows that we see um, with Roald Dahl's life. And uh, I mean, you wrote a beautiful book about his life. I mean, you got the keys to the castle, I guess, and just had all access to pretty much everything Roald Dahl, right? Yeah, no, it was a, it was a I mean, it was a tremendous treat to be invited into that space and as, as you say i had access to all his letters all his diaries his notes his, his his well the entire archive i was given which is huge i was given the run of it and it's it's enormous because he was a bit of a encyclopedic collector of letter he was a massive letter writer wrote tons and tons of letters you know most of his days started with with about at least an hour of writing writing letters to people that's a whole world again that's gone but it's very you know it's a, it, it gives you an amazing insight into the mind of somebody when you start reading all these all, you know all these letters uh, uh, that he wrote day after day after day 
That's brilliant. Yes, I mean, so your book, Storyteller, how did the concept of the book, how did that all come about and how did you get to start writing it? Well, I, I went back with Roald quite a long way. I was a very young television director at the BBC um, and I was, I was working on a book programme and I was given the chance, I was a researcher at that point, and I was given the chance to make my first sort of original film. Uh, and uh, it was for, it, at that point, children's writing was very much kind of lower level writing. And so a young TV director, given their chance on a book program, of course, would have been given the, the Christmas children's, you know, children's slot. So I yeah. rather, rather kind of confidently said, oh, I'd like to do a film about Roald Dahl. Um, I was a little old, in fact, to have read uh, a lot of his, his, you know, a lot of his children's books. I'd read Charlie and James, but that was about it. But I, I knew him from Tales of the Unexpected. And I'd also seen him when I was at university give a, give a talk and be very, very funny. And I thought, oh, this guy would be a really interesting person to make a film about. And my boss said to me, oh, he's a curmudgeonly old bastard. He'll never cooperate with you. <laughs> and uh, you'll ha- you, you know, he'll give you a horrible time. Why are you choosing him? And I said, well, because I think it'll be interesting. And so I went ahead and, uh, uh, you know, actually we got, we, we got on incredibly well. I found him to be very, very interesting. Um, I did find out after he died that uh, his, his widow told me that I, I hadn't got off to the best of starts with him because i showed up on his doorstep and uh i mean i it was again it's a different age i found his i found his phone number in the phone book called him up (laughs) i said i'm reading from the bbc from bookmark program and uh you know i'd I'd very interested in making a film about you and he said oh you better come and over and talk to me so i came down on the train from london to, to to gypsy house i arrived on his I arrived at his house and he kind of opened the door and he was a huge man. He was about six or seven tall. And he lived in a house that had quite small proportions. It was sort of cottagey proportions. And so when he opened the door, he basically filled up the entire space in the doorway. And I remember him looking me up and down and then saying, ah, ah, go and sit in the sitting room. And so I was left in the sitting room for about 15 minutes. And then we had lunch and everything went, everything went fine. But uh, after he died, his, his widow, Lissy, told me that he had gone, he sent me into the sitting room and gone through to see her and said, oh, Christ, they've sent a child. <laughs> he, he actually put in an expletive before the child. Um, but, uh, yes. you know, they, they but, but uh, it was, it, it, I, I won my spurs because I'd done my homework and read, and, you know, I'd read all his books. And, um, uh, and I think like all writers, he was immensely flattered to be dealing with somebody who actually, uh, you know, had, had done their homework and wasn't just kind of winging it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, so, and like we're saying, he was he was the, the natural um, storyteller, and I suppose you learn just not in his in his writing work, but in terms of his own life as well, whether it be um, gathered around a dinner table, um, you know, or, or just talking to you. Like, what what how, where did how did your kind of relationship change from him sort of being reluctant that you turned up to someone that he could sort of share and invite back to gypsy house too well i i think he you know i think he liked uh he liked me um he liked the fact that i was enthusiastic and knew what i was talking about he liked the 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 the, the film i made and um i don't know i think i sort of fitted into the scene i mean when i i didn't really think about it at the time i just thought oh how nice that you know this kind of rather amazing person likes me and you know wants to invite me over for the weekend and you know wants to have me over for dinner it was it was very flattering i don't think i thought too much at the time why he had done that um when i was writing the book i did reflect on it and i thought um oh why why did he and i i, I think in a funny way he was a little starved of of young male company you know he had he was uh he, i think he quite liked male company he but his his family was very very female i mean he had four daughters uh he had three stepdaughters um he had three sisters so he 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 didn't have uh, uh you know he didn't he didn't actually have a lot of conversational contact i think with males particularly young males i mean the one of, he had a he had a very close contact with his editor at that, at that time too and with one or two other people but he liked he quite liked sparring 
conversation. And, uh, I, you know, and I think there's maybe this is rather too kind of uh, sexist thing to say, but I think there is a kind of male to male conversation that he, that, you know, that he missed out on a bit and, uh, and, and, you know, that the, I was able to fill that hole a wee bit. Yeah. And, and like you say, I mean, his, his whole life was, like I said, fairly Shakespearean. You know, in some, when I've been doing some of my, my research about Roald Dahl, I might be talking to people in the publishing world or different children's authors or even just people in Great Missenden. He does have a very, I, I suppose the word I would use is a controversial reputation um, in terms of his his um, mood. But do you think a lot of that, because not people are, are perhaps aware of, he, he went through quite a lot of traumas in his life. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I've come... I, I, w- I won't go into a huge list of the traumas, but I think <laughs> I think the very first one, and perhaps probably the most important one, was fighting in the war. And uh, uh, he 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 not I think there was there was famously on his first day to into active service, he crashed his plane in the desert and was very nearly killed, and received kind of severe injuries, which everyone thought would invalid him out of the air force, or. Uh, you know, I, I, or, or he might have died. Um, instead of which, he actually pulled himself together and and recovered and flew again. Uh, and I, I, you know, there's no doubt that those the pain from those injuries went on for the rest of his life. And I think that the stress of actually shooting down planes, planes in you know, in that one one-to-one situation in the sky um, and potentially killing people, you know, having that at your, uh, going through that is something that he didn't really talk about very much. But when I was writing the book, I I was aware of so many things that related back to that. You know, his very first stories that he wrote were all about flying. One or two of them are absolutely about that strange thing about if you go, you know, if, if you go a little bit this way or a little bit that way, you might drop a bomb. He wasn't actually a bomber pilot, but, you know, one of the stories is about a bomber pilot driven mad by the thought of the people that he, he might have killed by the bombs that, he's, that he dropped. And then there's a short story he wrote called The Soldier, about, which is, I think, a rather brilliant um, depiction of mental illness and depression and the trauma that, the, the, that somebody goes through who's, who's been in the war. And I mean, in fact, I, I don't know why. I just I had a feeling we might talk about this. And you know, we're in the nineteen late nineteen fifties, he wrote to his great friend in America, Charles Marsh, a thing. I just thought I'd read it. He said he says to Marsh, who was who was really probably the closest non-family member ever to him. He said, "I doubt I would have written a line, or would have had the ability to write a line, unless some minor tragedy had sort of twisted my mind out of the normal rut." I mean this. I know that serious illness is a good thing for the mind. It is always worth it afterwards. There's something of the yogi about it, with all its self-disciplines and horrors. Um, you know, it's that. It, it, I, I think at, at the heart there was a very, there was this big wartime trauma. I mean, I, I he often reflected on it that you know, if he hadn't been through the war, would he ever have become a writer? Um, mm-hmm. He he might have just stayed a kind of rather ordinary middle-class businessman, you know, you know, working for Shell. And, and, and before the war, there was really no sense of him wanting to become a writer. It was a very transformational thing. He used to also talk about this monumental bash on the head, which he'd received, which usually referred back to the plane crash. But I, I, think, I think it was more symbolic than that in a way, too. Um, uh, so I, I think those, that, that initial trauma was... You know, very important, and then, and then he went on. You know, to 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 have a son who was very badly injured in in a uh, you know was nearly killed when a taxi crushed in, in New York crushed him. He was only six months old against the side of a side of a bus. He lost his first daughter when she was seven. Um, his wife then had a terrible stroke. You know, there were these other tragedies, but I think probably the most important one for him as a writer. Um, was was that experience of, of fighting in a war? Yeah, yeah like I say, so, so much um, tra- trauma. I guess that, that he would have gone through it. So you know, I guess even from I'm, I'm trying to think how old he would have been. But he, am I right in thinking he lost his dad relatively young as as well at a young age? 
Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, he, yeah. in a funny way, I don't think he always, I asked him about that, and he said that wasn't a trauma. He was three years old when his father died. He hardly remembered his father. He had a fantastic mother uh, who raised the family and, and obviously essentially filled that void. I mean, you can look at the psychology and see that when he was younger, he was in an interesting way drawn towards older, strong male figures. Uh, this guy, mm-hmm. Charles Marsh, that I mentioned, but also there was a painter called Matthew Smith, one or two other people in the early part of his life who who, who kind of, you could say, filled a kind of paternal role. But I think he, it, you know, I, I think losing, actually being, uh, you know, a fatherless child wasn't too bad for him. I think it was worse for, for his two elder sisters, actually, because they... They really had right. developed a relationship with their father, whereas he always said to me, "I really can. I'm really not even sure that I actually remember him." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose as well. Like we live in a completely different world now to when Roald Dahl would have gone through um, all the different traumas he went through for his life. Where especially now we kind of try and encourage men to speak out about how they feel and the traumas that they go through. I mean, Roald Dahl was able to do that in terms of perhaps his, his writing. He was kind of, I guess, able to have that escapism and kind of reflect some of his traumas through his writing, whether it be in his books or his letters. Would you? Was he ever someone that was able to? talk about his feelings and, and experiences that he's had like quite openly about whether it be his daughter that passed away or anything like that no he was very much of the buttoned up generation uh, you know he yeah. did, I, I, I mean I gathered from his family that one of the most traumatic things about the death of his daughter was that it became very quickly something that was not to be talked about was something to be you know got over all her stuff was put away and you know the and and he you know he just went silent for 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 months on end he he wouldn't talk didn't want her name mentioned you know it was all uh it it was very much the the bottled up generation and i think you know i i i think probably a lot of that energy did find its outlet in 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 his stories mm-hmm. yeah and uh, i mean some I mean, in, in your book as well, Storyteller, I know he he was known to, I guess, have a bit of back and forth with some of his publishers and or editors and um, arguments and so forth. Was there a particular reason you felt like he sometimes he could be difficult in terms of his his writing work to to deal with? Was he was it just the fact that he was perfectionist and wanted it in a certain way, or was or was he being unreasonable at unreasonable at times as well? Ah, uh, um, well, I think there's a lot of all those things you mentioned. They were all part of the picture my my hunch is again uh taking it back to the war that once you've been through that wartime situation kind of arguments uh, don't really hold much much terror for you in terms of i mean he didn't really care about annoying people um he he, he was in no way a kind of sucker up to people at all he was the, the exact opposite of that i also think he did really care about his writing, you know, and uh, I, I think quite a lot of publishers will tell you that quite a lot of writers are actually rather difficult um, <laughs> and 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 are not the easiest people to deal with. So I, 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 I mean, in fact, one of them, the one he had the biggest row with, probably, um, told me, yeah, yeah, you know, that's this is true, and we did have a row, but he said I had rows with other writers that were pretty pretty similar. You know, writers are, you know, they sit. They they sit on their their own in their own world. They they when they present a manuscript, it's usually something that they care greatly about, and uh, you know they they don't really. It's a very difficult thing to let someone else into that space and and start saying, mm. Mm, well, I think maybe you should do this, or I don't think that's quite working, or you know you should make some cuts here. Um, uh, he he was he was interesting because he actually, I think, did welcome that 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 kind of involvement but it's a bit like probably a little bit like a, a relationship i think it's quite rare in publishing nowadays and it where it used to be much more common that um you know that there were editors who were very very low key they were very non combative personalities who 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 you know understood how to get into the writer's mind and won their trust and not I, I, and, and you know that it was the writer knew it was never going to be uh, 
a battle. It was just, here's this person who wants the best out of, out of my material. Um, and I think he did find that in, 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 in one or two editors. But when he got an editor who, who he felt was hostile to him, um, he could, I mean, he could be very cantankerous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that because it, when I've been sort of doing my Roldar research from my writing and stuff, and been going to Great Missenden and you know go to go to the there's a really nice pub on the high street. I'm sure you're aware of the pubs in, in Great Missenden. Um, but you know, you, you talked to a few people about Roll and Roll and his reputation. You you kind of I don't know if he was someone that was very particular about who he'd let into his circle because you kind of got the vibe from some people that did know of him would, that would say he was a grumpy old bastard and then you get people that say oh yeah my mate Roll used to be up down the allotments with him play snooker with him he was a really nice bloke um so was he was he kind of particularly careful about who he let into his sort of inner circle he, he wasn't sort of one of these people that was perhaps um really a big um in getting involved in the community of great missadin for example um I, I think that's a very interesting question. I think he was definitely involved in the community of Great Missenden. There's no question about that. And, and you know, he used to have the electricians, builders. He had this circle of what you might call artisans, you know, who came up to play snooker right. once or twice a week. Um, this was in a period when I didn't know him, but when, when his kids were younger, he had, a, he had a swimming pool in the garden of his house. And it was it was basically open to any kids from the village who wanted to come in there and swim. I think in that sense, he was, he was very community minded. Um, and, and, and that's where he was very plugged in to, to the locale. I think, I, I think on the other side, he saw himself as a, a bit of an outsider. I mean, it's always fascinating to me that his, his writing career began in America and in America, mm. he lived in big cities in, in New York and Washington. Um, he didn't like big cities. Um, and he never lived in London. He didn't like London. He didn't, he, he, I, I think he had this view of himself as an outsider, of a sort of gypsy. I mean, I think it's no surprise that he named his house Gypsy House, that, that, that he saw he saw himself quite consciously as outside. I, I don't think he ever fitted into the, the, if you like, all the establishment. It's a horrid word. I, I, I don't like to use it. But mm-hmm. there is, I, I think it, particularly in his day, there was a very Oxbridge literary arts world. And he hadn't been to university, did not fit into that, and, and saw himself very much like the sort of rough diamond rubbing up against slightly... Yeah, uh, annoying middle class values. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I think he saw himself, you know, and I, 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 in a way, that's how when he came to write for kids, which which he came to quite late on, you know, he he was very confident of being that rough diamond. I think he thought saw that kids have a different view of the world to adults, and it it it, it wasn't governed by uh, by by kind of silly views about what you should and shouldn't say and what you should and shouldn't write about. And, um, and I think that may actually have gone back to, to his Norwegian roots because talking to his own school friends, I mean, I was, I was lucky enough that one or two really close friends were still alive from his school days when I, when I, when I wrote the book. They, when they described going to stay with Mrs. Dahl and the Dahl family, you know, whether, whether it was in Wales or in their house in Kent, um, uh, you know, it was clearly, this clearly wasn't the, the typical English middle-class home with lots of rules about what you could and couldn't do and what you could and couldn't say. This was, you know, it was, it was a fairly wild, free kind of, maybe it's too easy to say Scandinavian sort mm-hmm. of Nordic, but you know, the, it was, it, it was very free and easy. There was no, um, the, there were no hangups about sex. There were no, you know, so when, you know, his his sisters, you know, I think were very unusual in being feeling totally happy to bring back guys home, you know, and and sleep with them, you know, and the, and and Roll's mother was totally seemed to be totally at ease with that too. Um, so I, I mean, I think he did, uh, for lots of reasons, feel a, feel a little bit of an an outsider, but not he, he Gypsy House in 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 Great Missenden was never like a fortress that people couldn't. Going to, I mean, I was amazed when you went to visit there. There'd be a stream of people 
coming in and out. The door, you know, as long as it wasn't winter, the front door was usually mm-hmm. open, and and there'd be tons of people coming. And he, I remember him complaining to me, sort of in the last year of his life, that that you know he got these, these orchards with apple trees, and he said, you know, when when I first came here, kids from the village would come and pick the apples and take them take them away, and he said now now they don't come, you know, and he he was a bit he, he was he was a bit sad about that. Oh, yeah, that, that's that's interesting. Because um, he, he seemed to, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, but he, he seemed to appreciate the, I don't know if it was the, the honesty and almost bluntness of children. They will just say exactly what they think. And I, I felt like sometimes he could, he, he just felt that kids, he, he knew where he stood with children. So perhaps he didn't always know where he would stand with adults, I suppose, sometimes. <laughs> As an old man, one of the most delightful things about him was his his confidence in understanding small children. I mean, he was absolutely confident, and I think with good reason, that he understood them almost to a unique degree. And I'm sure there are lots of adults that, that, that do, but it was very delightful to see, you know, to, to see him in the company of, of children at a, at a book signing or whatever, because, as I say, he was a very big guy, and he had this slightly, it was slightly scary face, you know, it was, it was it, it was big and long and and um it could be you know it could potentially be grumpy and he as these kids would come up you know uh, uh and get their books signed he this there'd usually be a twinkle in his eye he'd say something outrageous to them that they wouldn't kind of <laughs> believe he'd you know he'd say something funny he was and and you could see he was completely relaxed and and in a very particular way with, with young kids. And when I remember when I asked him uh, you know, about that, he said he saw himself almost as like an ambassador for them and that the, the world, had, you know, most adults had forgotten what it was like to be small, to, for instance. And, you know, the fact that you couldn't see what was on a shelf and you, you, you spend your whole life looking up at, 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 at people. And I mean, little things like that, which, um, I, I think he he understood very well and was very you know he he was very proud to call himself an infantile geriatric or a you know uh, <laughs> I, 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 he, I, I I think that was a unique unique gift he had or pretty special yeah. gift anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And do, I mean, do you think his because you know you do talk in your book about um, his experiences at school as well, and do you think? Um, his school experiences really shaped how he would write, not just only in his children's books, but even some of the stuff that um, I've seen in, in um, The Tales of the Unexpected and some of his shorter stories. I I'm trying to think of the name that they would call them. What was it when you were the younger kids at school and the older kids were called something? What was the Bozers? Or oh, something? The Bozers. Was they were like the pre The Bozers. They were the ones who, yeah. who, who at, at his school, uh, you know, actually wielded the authority you'd expect an adult to have. I mean, it's a, Today, it seems like a, a extraordinarily barbaric system that teenage boys were given the power to punish and beat younger boys, you know, without mm. any without any adult uh, kind of supervision. I mean, it's bad enough anyway. But you think, God, with no adult supervision, it's almost like sort of Lord of the Flies or something. Um, mm. And I think I I think Rawls was not alone in finding that a very savage and awful environment. I mean, he had, I talk about it in the biography, he had a contemporary, a, a, you know, who became a much less famous writer, but for, quite an interesting guy called Denton Welch, who actually ran away from, you know, ran away from mm. the school. And of course, Graham Greene famously talked in his, in, in his autobiography. He was the headmaster's son, but was, but, but had, so it was actually, he could, potentially have his a house that was his house that he could escape to but he couldn't because he was he he was a boarder at you, you know in the in the school even though it was attached to his, his own house so he he felt like his family had pushed him out into this savage world and i think i think rolls felt very similar you know he I, and i i i think the school also set up a very strongly anti institutional uh, kind of vibe in him, you know, that, 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 that he felt these places were run not by 
enlightened people, but by petty, small people, and that and that you know the the more vulnerable got you know suffered really. Um, yeah. And, I, and do you I, feel like it has shaped his um, his writing as well? Like in terms of whether you, you know, it just makes me think of even things I know uh, Miss Trunchbull is a woman, but it just makes me think of Matilda and some of the and even some of his other books, like some of the authority figures that the, the child has to come up against. I really yeah. feel like you get a sense of that from his school experiences. Yeah, I think that's true. I'm sure. I'm sure that all went back to, to you know to his school days, and again that sense that you know. The the small child is powerless. They they often have absolutely no ability to influence the decisions about their own lives because they are entirely taken by their parents or by uh, if they're an orphan, you know, by uh, you know by you, you know by someone else or by you know by a school teacher in, in in a school. I think he had a very acute sense of how disempowered a small child can feel and how much they could long for to be empowered and i think that's you know that's obviously a, a massively common strand that runs through a lot of his uh, in fact nearly all his children's books in some ways are about a, a small child who's sort of left on their own and is completely disempowered they've either got horrible aunts like you know sponge and spiker and james and the giant peach or ghastly parents like Matilda has who don't who you know who think she's a, a little nobody and you know they almost rather wish she wasn't there um mm -hmm. and and uh, almost anyone you can think of I mean even Danny Champion of the World which is a bit of uh which is a bit of an exception it even there you know it's it's Danny who actually gets into the car and drives into the woods at night to rescue his dad you know he's he empowers himself and by doing something that technically he he isn't allowed to do, but but you know, Rod know, knows that you know he's doing it for a very good reason, and he does it very safely. And he you know, uh, I I think that's I think that's a very good example of where he where a where he he takes a a child's view to the point of you know breaking the law, um, but it, it, as a technicality, but because. You know, well, that's you know, he felt it was the right thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, another thing that you talk about in your book, Storyteller, and um, is re really well written how you've done this about his about his relationships. Obviously, he was married to um, Patricia Neal, um, the, the the actress, um, for a long time. But then it seemed like you know he met uh, Lissy Dahl, who um, he he spent the rest of his life with. Um, and I really get the sense of in in your book. Do you feel like he he the marriage with Patricia Neal and obviously she had a, you know some more trauma that she had to deal with as well that Roald Dahl really did support her through and um sort of helped her on a recovery but do you feel like um the the, the the sort of the love between him and Lissy and him and um Patricia Neal was it a bit very very different it seemed almost like um as Roald got a bit older the relationship with Patricia Neal was perhaps convenience of some sorts for him um well, I think I think there was definitely a big attraction between him and Pat to begin with. I mean, they were they that you know she was a very beautiful Hollywood star and uh, and and theatrical star and and I mean he he was he didn't get married till his late thirties mm -hmm. and and he, I think both had also come off the rebound of relations of quite intense relationships where they they'd been rejected by the other person. So I think the they were sort of thrown together and I think I think both of them wanted a family and although it it the marriage nearly fell apart in the first that marriage nearly fell apart in the first 6 months. I think once once they started to have kids and I then I think they became I think maybe like a lot of of, of, of parents do the, the family becomes it's it's almost like the team and they're you know that's that we're a family now and and i think fam family meant a huge amount to him um i think after pat had her stroke in the in the, in the 1960s he very much became became sort of her carer and protector and that that i think probably messed up some of the 
the dynamic the, 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 that had kept the relationship so vibrant at the beginning. And, 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 you know, what Lissy was able to provide, she was obviously significantly younger too, but I think she, she was, yeah, she was filled with energy, filled with love for him. And she, she could, she came in, I mean, his, his, his family nearly, you know, pretty much unanimously said to me that when Lissy came into Gypsy House, she kind of transformed it and made it a much more relaxed, comfortable place. And she took a lot of the pressures off him and, uh, uh, and you could see Rolf's productivity went up by about 300, 400% um, mm. after Lizzie arrived, because I think he didn't have to worry about about his kids, about, you, you know, there were a mass of worries were just taken, you know, taken off his plate, um, and he could concentrate on, uh, you know, on his writing, rather than struggling to find time to, to write, which I think was was true of a lot of that period from say, mid-1960 through to about 1980. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we, we should talk about Roald Dahl's writing. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> we've talked quite a lot about his life. So going on to, to his writing, I mean, we have touched on it. Um, he didn't jump straight into the world of children's writing. Um, like you said, he almost he fell into it by accident, um, his, his writing career. Um, was it, I believe it was the article for the war that he sort of kicked it all off for him? Uh, as, a, as a writer, yeah. I mean, he yeah. Was, he he was eventually invalided out of the the RAF, and uh, he, they tried to make him into a pilot kind of instructor or trainer. He he hated that, and uh, almost by a series of strokes of good fortune, he found himself sent to Washington as almost like a PR you know pilot to represent uh, to represent the RAF in the US. And when he went there, of course, the US was not was not in the war; it was still neutral. Um, Pearl Harbor hadn't happened, and uh, so so there was a strong, you, you know, the, Brit, the British government was trying to to encourage pu- American public opinion to come into the war on you know on our side, um, and that really was w- was his job. And so he got to uh, you know part of his job was to was to get artists, writers, celebrities from Britain. To write pieces about, uh, you know, in the in the press about about the war effort, and um, he, I think it was within first months of him arriving in Washington, um, C.S. He was he got in touch with C.S. Forrester, who the writer of the Hornblower books, who was living in 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 Washington, and um, and and Forrester said, and you know. Roald said he'd like him to write about something. And he said, well, I'd like to write about some of your experiences. So the two of them went out to lunch. Roald tells the story very, very well. I can't tell it anything like so well. But, you know, he describes them in a, in this restaurant on a small table. And he had ordered roast duck. And Forrester couldn't write, take his notes. Um, and so Roald mm-hmm. said, well, why don't, why don't I write it all up when I get home? And send it to you, and then you can turn what I've written into a story. And uh, he sent him a piece of work that was basically that Forrester said, "Well, I don't have to do anything to this. You know, you're a natural writer, and uh, it should be published. You know, pretty much as as you've written it." It's it's interesting that that's how Roll tells it. In in his <laughs> fact, it was it was a little you know it was a little bit different because. Uh, the the story was changed quite a bit, but probably not not really significantly. But you know the the crash was turned into um, you know he was shot down, and I think that was a change that was in, originally made by the you know the RAF censor because the whole the whole thing was basically a piece of propaganda. Um, but what it did was without doubt liberate this thing in him which had been you know, which had been sort of bottled up because the moment he got that reaction, it was like, right, I'm off. And, you know, his letters home from then on are like, I'm I'm writing another story. I'm doing this. I, I get home from my day's work and I sit down and write. And, and I you feel that the, the writing there was a kind of therapy. And so he began as a, a short story writer, writing Stories that were loosely connected to flying and the war, and very much, I'd say, influenced by Ernest Hemingway um, in, in in their style. He then tried to write two novels, one of which was published, and it's actually very interesting. We probably don't 
probably it's probably a sideline to talk about here um but you know he wrote this he wrote this sort of futuristic sci-fi book with the the these gremlin characters who he'd written he'd written disney, a little um, bit about yeah. disney in the war but this the his novel sometime never you know is about the destruction of the planet and and it's very you know it's very i think it's the first post-atomic bomb you know the kind of hot sort of post-atomic holocaust novel but it was it 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 wasn't hugely well received and then then he wrote a second novel which was on which never got published um and then he then he retreated in back into the short story world of adult short stories that which he began but but this time not so much linked to flying and hemingwayish but more kind of macabre with little twists at the end and you know that's how he made his reputation with the sort of tales of the unexpected uh uh type of thing but by the time he had a family or started a family he then got into his 40s and as as he told me i remember you know you know he was finding those plot driven short stories harder and harder to, he was finding it harder to get the ideas for them and uh and and with small kids and a wife who was an actress who was away from home a lot of the time he was like mum and dad uh combined and and so had to tell them stories to get them to go to bed and and he found them you know that's that's how he started uh, the story of James and the Giant Peach was by I think it was a cherry when he when he first started uh, yes. uh, 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 writing about it. But you know, and he had a he had a rather wonderful agent who who only died a couple of years ago um, called Sheila St. Lawrence, who had all through the 1950s been she had a sense that that writing for children might be a real forte for him, and she she kept badgering away at him and. You, you know, most of the time in the throughout the early years of the 50s, all her suggestions were always like robust, rather playfully thrown <laughs> back in her face. Um, but but by the late 1950s, uh, when she suggested it again, and he had this this story about the giant cherry, well, it became the giant peach. Um, uh, he gave it a try and he was like, in his, I guess he was in his early 40s when he started, you know, when he started work on that, but he was very, he was very unconfident uh, uh, about it to begin with. You know, he, he kept saying, "Oh, I don't know if this is going to work, or whether it'll be any good." Or blah, 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 blah. and and uh, for once in in his writing career, he, I, I mean, again, that was only to his his agent with whom he was very close, and uh, you know, but it was it was just a tentative uh, uh, attempt at writing for kids. I, there's no sense. When he was writing James and Giant Peach, that he'd found the thing that was going to make him famous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really, really interesting to hear how he got into what well, the world of children's um, writing. His agent obviously knew what she was on about. <laughs> yeah. um, and am I am I right in thinking as well? He 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 worked on some films as well, like <laughs> screenplays. So he was the um, uh, which which James Bond was it? Was it You Only Live Twice? Yes. Very <laughs> lived twice and um, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and he yeah. wasn't too keen on the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang experience, but enjoyed the James Bond experience. Was, was that? Yeah, right? I mean, yeah, uh, he was pretty. He, I mean, back from his wartime days, he he worked quite a bit with uh, with filmmakers, and he 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 worked on screenplays, um, and I think from quite an early time had got. I've developed a very healthy skepticism about the the artistic values if you like of of of, of working in the movies um and uh he 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 had got to know Ian Fleming during the war and when the opportunity to write you only live twice came up um you know he did have a lot of medical bills to pay it was a, you know it was at the the time when he was he was trying to pull Pat through through her stroke recovery, and um, and you know I think things were very financially tough for the family. And I mean, he, he said to me, "Oh, oh, you know, I would only ever do film writing just because it, you can make a lot of money from doing it." But he did it. But you're quite right. The Bond film was the one film that he said he actually enjoyed working on, and um, and was quite pleased with the result. Though, although I think. I watched Chitty Chitty, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang as a kid, 
and absolutely mm. loved it. And I can remember, yeah, I, um, mm. I can remember going and having dinner with um, with Lizzie uh, uh, and her, one of her daughters and Ophelia, one of Roald's daughter, daughters in London. And we and we had over dinner. Ophelia said to me, "Oh, what's the scariest thing that you can remember from a film?" And I said, oh, I think it was probably the child catcher in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> and she said, oh, yeah, dad, dad invented that. Dad invented him. <laughs> and I thought, of course, you know, not, I, I, I didn't know that. And it had, not, it had not occurred to me. But in fact, it's a, it's a you know, it's, it's totally, totally sort of Roald Dahl character, the way, the way he smells out children. And it's so yeah. memorable in the movie that this nose of mine has never failed me. You know, so. mm-hmm. Yeah, and you see that in the witches as well a little bit with um, the story of the witches that's sort of sniffing out children yeah. and, and things. So yeah, yeah. And again, that's that. I, I I think he knew almost instinctively that small kids have a very strong connection to their sense of smell in a way that mm. adults kind of you, smell is sort of written out of adult conversation. You talk about seeing things or hearing things or maybe touching something, but n- not so often smelling things and that I think kids are much more in touch with a sense of smell and smell things much more strongly than than than, than adults do yeah and I was really surprised as well because one of my favorite movies especially growing up was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory the original one with Gene Welder in and um and am I right in thinking that Roald just didn't like that film at all just hated it um I think that's probably a little too strong I think that okay so say he hated it he didn't like the music um, right. And and I think he thought Gene Wilder was absolutely fine. I I didn't have a I never had a conversation with him about it myself. But but mm-hmm. from other uh, from other people and other other sources, I I I I think he was he felt Gene Wilder was a bit bland, and he'd originally, mm-hmm. you know, he'd encouraged the producers to go for Peter Sellers. Or for Spike Milligan in particular, yes, he thought yeah. Spike Milligan would be a, a, a really perfect Willy Wonka, and even got Milligan into audition and shaved his beard off and whatever, so he looked more more plausible. And they, you know, they didn't go with him. Um, I guess because it was it, it it's quite an American production, and and if, in a funny way that 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 film, I think that film helped help that the sense of the Americans feeling that Roald Dahl was one of them. I think it really helped build his audience because actually I think he's a very English writer. Um, uh, most of his, his characters are, are very English and most of his stories are, are set in England. Okay. So there's New York at the, at the end of James and the Giant Peach, but that's that the basic story is, 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 you know, is an English one, but that, that, the mm-hmm. success of that movie, and Charlie in particular, I think became a very American story. Yeah, I, I think even like you say a really interesting point actually about sort of where he gets the sort of settings for his stories being in England. Because I just think even walking around in Great Missenden, you get the sense of where some of those stories came from. Whether it be Fantastic Mr. Fox, you have the is it the petrol pump in Danny Champion of yeah, the World that's yeah. still that's still there, and the BFG I think is based sort of on the High Street or, or something like that. That's where no, that's right. That's where the the yeah. the orphanage was, and you know that, yes, that whole yeah. description at the beginning of the the giant coming down the High Street is 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 definitely. Great Missenden High Street. Yeah, and it, I mean, there's great. I'm sure you've been there many times. The gravesite of Roald Dahl's and um, buried at is a, a really beautiful site. He's got a very, I believe, um, it was described as sort of Viking-like funeral. His funeral where the gravesite is, and you've got the uh, the BFG steps and the, the wonderful um, bench there with some quotations on it from I think it was the Giraffe Pelly and me. Um, that's really, that's really nice up there. Um, am I right in thinking as well? Like in his um, coffin, he's he's also got a few objects that he wanted to to have with him at, <laughs> close by. I. I... Yeah, I can't. I can't actually. Remember. I mean, I know he was buried with Mars bars and something. I, I, I can't actually remember the detail, but the, it, it was definitely a very uh, quirky, personalised. Um, quirky, maybe the wrong word, but very touching and 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 different. And the, as you say, the grave is, it, you know, is 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 very charming, and it's kind mm-hmm. of it's delightful that it's it's still a kind of place of pilgrimage for. For, for for kids and people leave funny little things on it and and uh, yes it, it's 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 
very charming. Yes, absolutely. Um, do you remember when the last time you would have saw Roald was? The last time you saw him? Probably about two months before he died. Two and a half months, two months before, before he, he died. died. Yeah. yeah. And was um, his health... Cause I know, was it a rare blood disease that he Yeah, that he it was a kind yeah. of leukaemia. Um, uh, but, you know, it was, it, it was funny. He was... On, for the five year, five or so years I knew him, he, on and off, he was ill quite a few times. You know, you'd be mm-hmm. invited to dinner in six weeks' time, and then there'd be a phone call two weeks beforehand saying, he's really not very well, and dinner's been cancelled, and we'll, we'll, get, you know, we'll get back to you when, uh, uh, you know, when he's feeling better, because he had, uh, I, think, I think he had bowel cancer. He certainly had significant bowel surgery a couple of years before he died. But it, it was funny because he did not lose, even when he was, uh, you know, he was not really old because he, he was only 74 when he died, which, mm-hmm. which, which these days isn't, isn't that old. No. Um, but, you know, he still kept his kind of childish enthusiasm. I, I can remember him ringing me up and, and saying, what are you doing next Saturday? And I said, uh, he said, well, don't, don't tell me. I'm not interested. Whatever it is, cancel it. Because, <laughs> because we'd like you to come here and the, the, our dinner will be much more fun than anything else you're doing. You know, it, it, the, it, he, he was able to bring that kind of energy down, down the phone in a way that was remarkable. Just, just thinking about it now, it just reminds me. I can see exactly where I was right at the call. I thought, who else would ever, you know, call you up and just, just say, whatever you're doing, just cancel it come you know come to this instead but i bet he's someone that he he could get away with saying that to you and you'd be like i'm absolutely going to do do this as well not many people could get away with it you're totally right yes (laughs) and there's a wonderful story that i've I've heard you tell before and um i don't want to say too much because i'm going to try and hint prompt you to what i'm sure you know what i mean um there's uh so on roald dahl's writing hut that you have lots um on the table he has one lots of little wonderful objects you know know, on tables and stuff and there's one thing i I believe he particularly shared off that table whilst you were gathered around a table that was oh yeah um, yeah i'd Uh, love you tell that story (laughs) yeah no he was you you know it's funny going to dinner there was always an occasion of some sort you know he'd like to bring out puzzles and and things you know in, you know, in the middle of the meal and say, oh, who can solve this? And sometimes it was about how to stand something on a nail or whatever. And, uh, you know, usually this would go, go, go around and people would have a go and, you know, and then nobody would be able to do it. And then he'd show us all how, yeah. how, how, how it was done. And, and, and one, one evening he brought this thing out and said, who knows, who, what's this? And uh, it, it was a kind of like a little ball thing slightly orangey brown colored it, I, I don't know it, was, it looked a little bit like a large golf ball or something you know but it was a strange shape and people you know some sort of was a fossilized something you know said you know and so went went around the table and then uh and then he said well it's actually the head of my hip bone you know which i've just had which i had replaced you know six months ago and it was you know it was and and at least one of the first minute. Oh, that's disgusting! How could you bring that out in the middle of a meal? But that was just the kind of childish, and he took enormous yeah. delight in in slightly shocking um, those sort of you might call uh, pretty. He would have called them slightly pretty values. You know, it's like no, come on, it's we've all got them. We've all got a bone, these bones <laughs> in our bodies. What on earth is 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 disgusting about it? You know. Um, and 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 he said, actually, it's really interesting because you could all those little dots. The reason I thought it was a bit like some kind of weird golf golf ball-y type things. It had these little pits in it, a bit like a golf ball does. And he said that's the you know that's the effect of that. That's why people have terrible hip pain because that's the osteoarthritis that that has eaten away into what should be a smooth uh, you, you know head of the bone and and that would normally rub in the joint very smoothly is now all roughened up and and that's why it's replaced with a you know with a metal thing i don't think he took out the metal the the the, the metal thing, but he had that in his writing hut too he had he had one of the prostheses which they do hammer into the bones and and one of them hadn't worked and he'd said and he said to go into and have a second operation to have it taken out and a new one put in and and uh, he said oh can i keep the the one that didn't work 
so he had that and he had that next to him as well it's amazing and did he have spinal shavings as well was wasn't that yeah he kept yeah. things that yeah. had come out of his spine in a little in a, in a little kind of clear cylinder with which was filled with i suppose it was something like methylated spirit all i remember it was this purpley colored thing and it had these things that looked like worms you know kind of swimming around in in, in <laughs> inside there well, Donald, it's been absolutely amazing to talk to you um, today. Like, uh, you know, I think for for lots of children's writers, he is he is the Buddha the Buddha of children's literature, especially in this country. I often go to Great Missenden just to try and walk in his footsteps and kind of come on, Roald, give me something to, to go on. Um, but I, you know, from someone that knew him, how do you think? Uh, I mean, I imagined he always. I think I heard a quote from him once saying that he he saw himself more as entertainer rather than an educator for, for children. But from someone that knew him, how do you think Roald would like to be remembered? I, I think he'd really like to be remembered as a a quality writer, a craftsman. He was he was very interested in craftsmanship, and he took the craftsmanship of writing very seriously. You know, he he said the most annoying question that he was often asked in interviews, oh, where do you get your ideas? He said, well, you know, I work at the ideas. Every time I think I, something might be a good idea, I write it down. He had these ideas books. And, um, and he said, it's bloody hard work. And, you know, it takes me a long time to write because it's, it, 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 it isn't easy. It isn't, you don't just sit and it all comes out. It's, it, it you know, it requires work day after day after day after day after day after day after day. And then many of his books he rewrote, you know. I mean, Matilda went through enormous, significant revisions. Mm -hmm. And even when, so um, it's not the most, he certainly saw himself as an entertainer. And that's what, you, you know, he liked telling jokes. He was a very entertaining personality to me. I, he was, you know, like when he died, I remember thinking, this is so sad. I'll miss, I'll, I'll miss just the sparkle of his company. But um, I, I think as a writer, he really, he really valued craftsmanship and he, he didn't like things that were slipshod or half-baked or hadn't been worked, you know, worked through enough. And when, whenever young, younger writers wrote to him for advice, that was usually what he said, you know, just, you know, I mean, he, he might throw in something fun like exaggerate and, and make, you know, whatever you want to say, like double it and then double that again. And, you know, then it might <laughs> yeah. be interesting. But, but, but actually, I think that's one of the reasons, too, why his books have stood up so well, is that they are beautifully written. And you, when you read them out, the, the sentences have a, have a flow and a cadence and a pattern that is, that is the result of, I think, long, hard work. And I think he was, you know, I think he knew he was a very, very good craftsman. Mm -hmm. amazing well we, we've like just got the tip of the iceberg from this talk with you today like your book storyteller um is absolutely a, f a fascinating read so i urge anyone that wants to learn more about roald dahl not just his writing but his but his life the ups and downs the shakespearean uh, life that um he had that we spoke about so much more detail um in donald's book so be sure to check that out storyteller um donald thanks so much I, I, you've been here for so long with me talking so thank you so much well, and no, i really appreciate your time it's been a real pleasure thank you very much thank you okay. cheers bye-bye thank you Bye. So there you have it, folks. A fascinating chat with Donald Sturrock there about the life of Roald Dahl. Be sure to check out um, his book about Roald Dahl's life, Storyteller. Um, you won't be disappointed. A really fascinating read. Just so many ups and downs in Roald's life that there is to, to learn about. And... Um, and I think when you when you read Donald's book, you really get a sense of he he was just the definition of a storyteller, and you can just see how the effects on his life and the influences that he's had, and the people in his life um, have have uh, influenced him, I suppose, um, in, in his writing and his books, whether that be for his um, adult fiction or his um, children's fiction as well. So a really fascinating um, chat there with Donald. Uh, be sure to check out his book. Be sure to keep following us on following the, following the podcast. Like I said uh, earlier at the start, you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Shapes of Stories. You can follow me on Twitter, which is just L Prestige Seven, or you can follow us on Instagram, um, which is Prestige Books, 
or you can just follow me on Facebook, which is Lawrence Prestige. Uh, really look forward to bringing you more episodes soon. Take care, guys, and uh, yeah, look forward to starting this podcasting journey with you.